Well, hey, good morning, church. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to welcome you if you're here with us uh, in person. So glad that you could be with us. If you're online this morning, I want to welcome you too. Glad that through technology you are able to join us, whether you're near or far. Uh, glad that you're with us. If you are newer to our church family, I would just I would love to meet you. If this is one of your first times here uh, in person, I'd love to meet you. I'll just be down here in the front. I would love for you to introduce yourself to me afterwards. If you're online with us and if you're newer, uh, just let us know in the comments. We have some, oh, wow, that was loud. We have some people that uh, are online there that would love to talk to you. Um, and also, we just if you are newer online with us, just want to invite you to join us whenever you are able. Uh, would love for you to join us in person as we think there's something really significant that happens when we gather together. But we are grateful and thankful for you that you're able to join us online. And we pray that this time, even though you're not with us physically, that this time is encouraging and uh, just full of grace for you also. Well, hey, this morning we're going to uh, keep going in our series through the book of Mark. We're, we are in Mark chapter 14 this morning, and uh, we're almost done. feels like we've been in Mark for forever, but we're almost done. Mark chapter 14, and Mark chapter 14 is the longest chapter in, in the book of Mark. It has 72 verses. Uh, so two thoughts came to mind when I, when I realized I was going to be doing this. One is we can get super comfortable and just go verse by verse and just kind of walk through this entire thing together. But I don't want to do that. So the second idea that came to mind, which is really what I wanted to do, was just I could probably just read the entire chapter, 72 verses, say a prayer, and then we can go home. And that would be, that would be the best way to do it. But we're not going to do that either. Uh, this morning... Uh, my hope is that we kind of just look at moments in Mark chapter 14. But before we do that, I just want to give you an overview of all the things that happen in Mark chapter 14. It starts off, uh, and maybe you have, uh, if you have your Bible with you, maybe there's a little uh, heading there that says Jesus is anointed at Bethany. So this woman comes, brings her perfume, breaks it, anoints Jesus, people get upset about it, you know, whatever. And then it goes on, Judas finally... I, well, there's more to the story. I don't have time for it, everyone. we got 72 verses. Good Lord. Uh, there's more to the story, but that's what happens, basically. Uh, Judas uh, then agrees to betray Jesus. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. And then we have the Last Supper. Uh, and then we have Jesus predicting Peter's denial. And then we have Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we have Jesus being betrayed and arrested. And then... This is strange. In like verses 50, 51, 52, there's this story. Jesus had just been arrested and his disciples are fleeing. And it's like there's this interesting character that gets introduced. I don't know if you guys have read this yet. Hopefully you're reading along with us in Mark. Uh, but there's this character who is chased after and he loses his clothes and he's naked and he runs away. And that's all we know about this guy. Right? That's all we know about him. Many scholars tell us that this is... Uh, John Mark kind of writing himself into the story. Now, I'm not an expert or an author by any means. I feel like there's better ways you could have written yourself into the story than being the, the naked guy that runs away when Jesus is arrested, but that's for another, another time, I think. Uh, so we have John Mark kind of writing himself into the story a little bit there, and then we have Jesus before the council, which is interesting. There, if you would actually study like the legality of what's going on here in Jesus' time, you find that this, um, this whole interaction that happens with Jesus is, is pretty shady. Uh, like, it's just not legal. 
maybe it's legal, like you could maybe think it's legal kind of deal, but fully, not really. Uh, so we have Jesus before the council, and then we have Peter denying Jesus, and then it ends. And then it just ends, right? And so there's a lot that happens here. There's a lot that happens here, but this morning, like I said, we're just going to be kind of looking at different moments uh, throughout the, the ordeal, kind of taking a 30,000 view, 30,000 foot high view of this chapter and kind of seeing the storylines that are played throughout and how that impacts us today. So before we jump into this, will you just pause and will you pray with me? Jesus, we are grateful for you. And we, we know and we realize and we understand that we cannot know who you are without the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And so we, we confess and we submit to you and we ask that you would reveal Jesus to us in new ways this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. Not through our own knowledge and our own understanding that we can somehow figure it out on our own, but that we would be completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to teach us new things, to reveal you to us. In these moments, we, we surrender and we rest, trusting that you will reveal yourself to us and that your word would reveal yourself to us. So as we dive into this chapter, we just pray complete dependence on you. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have had a memory where you are like 1,000% positive it happened a certain way? And then you start talking to someone else who was there and experienced it, the same exact thing and have completely a different recollection of how it actually happened. Has this happened to anybody? Right? All the time. We experience this. In fact, I, was just, I just got in an argument with a, with a friend of mine about something we experienced together because I was positive it happened one way. He was positive it happened another way. And we could not agree. And we have no idea who's right. Right? Like that's the thing that's like we have no idea. We can't trust our own memory. You know, we, you start to doubt your own thoughts and your own memories. And you go, what actually happened? Now, this works out kind of both ways because we have memories that make us feel really good about ourselves, and we have memories that make us feel uh, not so good about ourselves. And we're willing to share the memories that make us feel good about ourselves with other people and, and kind of talk about those, but the memories that, that make us feel bad about ourselves, we kind of keep those away, right? Fully trusting that actually what happened back then that makes us feel so bad about ourselves is actually the truth. When maybe if we talked about it or, or mentioned it to a friend, we would get a new perspective. And so this is kind of where we approach Mark chapter 14 a little bit. See, to understand what's going on, I think understanding our memories and what we remember sets us up really well for these moments. Because the Jewish culture, Jesus and his disciples, they were, they were Jewish. And so the Jewish um, culture was really great at remembering and they were really great at remembering because they would put um, different icons to things or, or representations. And, and many of us probably do the same thing. There's probably, uh, if we see something, it'll, it'll trigger a memory. If you smell something, I was actually just reading an article that smell is one of the biggest um, uh, things that triggers memory for us. Right? And so this is what the Jewish culture did. And they created an entire calendar around festivals. 
And these festivals were, were moments in which they could remember the story of God interacting with their ancestors. And at the pinnacle of these festivals, at the very height of these fe- uh, festivals, is the Passover. And Mark 14 happens during the Passover. So the Passover is, is the, the pinnacle of these festivals that reminds the people of their slavery to the Egyptians way back in the Old Testament and their redemption from slavery and, and God kind of leading them out. And so they would have this entire meal planned, right? This is what the Last Supper is about here in Mark uh, chapter 14, and this is kind of where we are going to start. But they would have this entire meal plan that every piece of the meal had a, had a meaning, right? For example, let me, I'll just give you a few, a few things. They would have a glass of salt water, right? In the, in uh, like real salt water, like ocean kind of salt water, not like, you know, you sprinkle a little salt in it, but like the stuff that makes your mouth just kind of not good, Right? <laughs> Uh, and, and so they had salt water, and this salt water represented the tears of their ancestors. Because what had happened, Pharaoh, when, they, when the Israelites were in Egypt under slavery, Pharaoh decided to put a rule into place that the firstborn son of any Israelite was going to be killed. And this caused the people of Israelites to cry out to God to save them. And he does, through a guy named Moses. Right? And so this salt, this salt water reminded the Jewish people of the tears that they would cry out to God, that he would intervene, that something would happen, that he would save them. There's another, another part of this meal. So we have the salt water um, called the bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs, <laughs> quite frankly, uh, when you ate them in this meal, they, were, they wanted they were supposed to make you cry. Like that's how bitter and nasty these herbs were as a part of this meal. They were supposed to make you cry because you can read it. Back in Exodus, I'm not sure exactly where it's at, but somewhere back there, it says that the Egyptians made the life of the Israelites bitter. Bitter. And so it reminded the Jewish people, and so they're really great at telling stories and using these these icons and these uh, pictures to represent something else so that they could retell the story correctly. That they weren't going, well, I remember it this way. And someone else in another house goes, no, I remember it that way. And, you know, and then it's like, well, who knows? Right? But the fact that the Jewish culture uses these pictures to represent the truth of what actually happened. And we can see it if you go back in Exodus. We don't have the time to do that this morning. But if you go back in Exodus, you could see it completely. That every part of this meal had a meaning. And so in the Last Supper, this is what Jesus and his disciples were doing. They were having the Passover feast. They had the salt water. They had the bitter herbs. And then they had two, uh, there was more to it, but then they had two other um, pictures. And this is where we are going to pick up in verse 22, Mark chapter 14. As they were eating, so as they were eating the salt water and the bitter herbs, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. Okay, we need to stop here. 
because there's two other parts of this meal that kind of come up a little bit here that we need to understand a little bit more in depth. First is the bread. Now the bread is important. The bread is unleavened bread. There's no yeast in the bread. And here's, here's why it's that way. Because when Moses, when Pharaoh decides uh, to let the, the Israelite people go, um, it wasn't like a three-year process, right? It wasn't like, well, okay, well, yeah, you guys need to go. So first step is going to be this. You guys prepare all the stuff that you would need. You guys get everything together. Second step is finally you can leave. It was like the night of. Like they had to go, right? So they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread to let the bread rise because that takes time. So they did it without yeast. It's unleavened. So they made a bunch of bread that they could take with them out into the wilderness. And that's that, right? So this, this bread kind of represents the provision, right? The bread was, was how they were going to survive in the wilderness, this was how they were going to sustain life, how they were going to live, what they were going to eat, how they were going to be nourished, what gave them energy was this bread. And then we get to the, the wine. See, another part of this meal was actually uh, lamb. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know the story of the lamb. There was uh, injustice of Pharaoh deciding to kill the firstborn of every Israelite family. The injustice of Pharaoh brings about the justice of God that says, if your doorframe isn't marked by the blood of a lamb that you have sacrificed, you also will lose your firstborn son. So the injustice of Pharaoh meets the justice of God. And the way in which you can get out of the justice of God, the way in which you can kind of not be uh, impacted by the justice of God, it was by killing a lamb, taking its blood, and putting it on your doorframe of your house. And this was offered to anybody, Egyptians and Israelites alike. If anybody did this, the, the justice of God would move over their home and they would be spared. So this blood of the lamb, the lamb was like the, it was like the peak, like the, the sacrificial lamb that spared us. Now we have to see what Jesus does here. Because remember, these pictures of bread and the cup of the, and the lamb were pictures of the past. They were pictures of how God intervened back then. Jesus takes them and says, this is how God is intervening right now. This is how God is intervening right now. These elements, these pictures are no longer remembering a past event. But they are remembering a current reality. This is the words of Jesus. Right? And we see... Um, Paul tells us when, he, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, as, long, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This idea of remembering, that remembering is powerful, but remembering the right thing is important. That Jesus is saying that these elements are no more about the past of your ancestors, of God's intervention in their life. These elements now represent God's intervention in your life. It's no longer about remembering ancestors. It's about remembering what God has done for us now. And then we run into Peter. I love Peter. And I love Mark chapter 14 because it ends this way. Verse 72. It's the end of the chapter. How, it, how everything ends. It says this. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. 
Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. The end. Well, that's great. What does Peter remember? See, I think this is where we get caught so much. Because if you remember, as we were going through the whole list of everything that happened in Mark 14, Peter deny, or Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And then Peter goes on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus tells him, hey, come with me and pray. Guess what Peter does? He falls asleep. Not just once, but twice. He fails to do what Jesus tells him to do. Then they're in the, the garden, or they're in the garden, and the mob is coming to arrest Jesus, and they seize him. And uh, it doesn't say in Mark, but we can, we can find out from other gospel accounts that Peter takes a sword out and chops a dude's ear off. Right? Up to this point, when has Jesus ever used violence to do anything? Right? And so he, he kind of rebukes Peter and some other, uh, in other translate or other gospels, in, in Luke and John specifically. And so we have Peter again falling short, not doing what Jesus probably would have done or wants him to do. And then we get to Jesus before the council. So now Jesus is being tried in crime, right, as a crime criminal, that's the word, uh, and Peter is in the courtyard. Peter's in the courtyard, and there's three different people that come up to him and say, hey, aren't you, aren't you with the guy on trial right now? Aren't you one of the guys that was with him? And every time, he says no. No. In fact, it says in verse 71, right before, it says, Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. What does Peter remember? What is Peter remembering in verse 72 when he says, suddenly Jesus' words flashed through his mind? Is he remembering the cup and the, and the bread? Or is he just remembering how he fails? How he doesn't live up to the standard that Jesus has set before him. We take communion about monthly here. It's kind of a normal rhythm for us. And sometimes we can take communion without really understanding what's going on. Or the significance behind it. Because in these moments, Peter doesn't remember the thing Jesus tells him to remember. He remembers all his failures. And he remembers the things Jesus said that make him feel as though he's not good enough. It says he broke down and he wept. He broke down and he wept. See, we take communion. And so we have to ask the question, why does this Passover meal, why does communion actually matter? Like what would make a difference if Peter would have remembered the, the communion table, the Passover table, what would have made a difference for him? And ultimately, what makes a difference for us? What makes a difference for us? If we remember the communion table and the elements and what they represent, why does it matter? What would be different? And I want to give you two reasons why I think communion matters. The first reason is that communion confronts us. It confronts us with choices. We've got a choice to make when we come to the communion table. Do we want to continue to live in slavery in Egypt like the Israelites did, or do we want to follow into freedom? 
We're confronted with, with the Jesus at the Passover meal that says, this bread is my body, which is given for you. And we're confronted by the cup that says, this is the blood, which means there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. What did the Israelite people do while they were hiding in their house, waiting for God's justice to pass over? Absolutely nothing. They did absolutely nothing. Their house was marked by the blood of the lamb. The justice of God didn't peek in the door to make sure they were saying a prayer. The justice of God didn't peek in the door to make sure they were reading their Bible. The justice of God didn't peek in the door to make sure they were uh, voting a right way or living in a right way. The justice of God passed over because of the blood of the Lamb. We're confronted by this. How often do we try to take this into our own uh, control and say, I'm going to do it so that so that God will save me. I'm going to do these things so I will be spared. The job's already been done, and we are confronted with that in the communion elements. The second thing that the communion does for us, it confronts us and it invites us. It invites us into a life that isn't exhausting. It invites us to rest knowing that the work has been done. We have um, kind of this interesting, probably American view of things, that, that we have chosen God, that we have chosen to follow him. You know, I, I decided kind of stuff, which I'm not, that's not bad. But can we first remember but that before the foundations of the earth were even created, God chose us? Since when have we forgotten that? God chose you before the foundations of the earth were even made. The scriptures tell us that he formed you in your mother's womb wonderfully. He gifted you. He equipped you. He created you. He chose you. And this communion table invites us into that, invita- invites us into that life. Of rest, that life of peace, that life of joy. That we don't have, we don't have to try to earn his invitation into his life that he has for us. We don't have to try to be good enough to be able, okay, yeah, come on. He was doing that way before the earth was even created. And in Jesus is saying, in his sacrifice on the cross. Through his body and his blood, the work is completed one time for all things. One time for all sin. Jesus died one time. So often we think, well, we did all these bad things or things that make us feel bad about ourselves. And we live with this shame and guilt that can't overcome them. Right? That, that completely marks our life. That we make the same mistake over and over and over again. And we go, man, once I figure that out then maybe God will love me again. Then maybe he'll choose me to do something awesome. Church, that's not the the message of Jesus. It's not the message of Jesus. He's saying in his cross, in the cross, you have been marked by the blood of the lamb. One time for all sins, past, present, and future. There is no place for shame and guilt in the life of a follower of Jesus. 
There is no place for fear, anxiety, or anything like that because we know that Jesus has chosen us. And not only has he chosen us, he standed outside the timeline of history and has chosen us to come right now where we are. Has chosen you to be in the family that you're a part of. Has chosen you to be at the workplace in the place you are living. He hovers over the timeline of history and says, yeah, this is a good time. Let's send them now. Can we just be in awe of that for a moment? That before the, the world was created, God has chosen us, has invited us, has called us. There's nothing we have done that has merited that invitation or that call. But we simply come and accept the invitation. And so it would be a little strange this morning talking about the communion elements if we didn't partake in communion together. But this morning, as we take in this, uh, in this supper, in this meal together, let's do it in a way that reminds us of who God is. Not of how we have failed, but how he's chosen us before the creation of the world. How he's, he's uh, ordained a time such as this for us to be here right now, just and I think Peter shows us where we, we tend to live in this place that we uh, think really poorly about ourselves and think once we get things set up and we forget the words of Jesus that says, this is my body that I'm giving to you. This is my life. This is my energy that I'm giving to you. And this is my blood that marks you. That marks you. This is, this is my blood that saves you. There's nothing you can do that's going to energize you more or save you more than partake in the elements of communion. To, be, to remember and to realize our full dependence on who Jesus is. And so in a few moments, if people will dismiss you at the left side of your section. You'll come front. There'll be people serving communion in front of your section. You can take it there and and circle back, uh, there's, uh, if you don't want to take from someone, we have some in a baskets that you can just grab, right? And then you can take that com those communion elements as, as you see fit whenever you want to. We won't take them all altogether. But not only will we have communion here, uh, we'll have people that are on both sides. If you, if you just want prayed for this morning, if you find yourself in a place maybe where Peter was, broken down and weeping because you are so aware of your shortcomings that you think God can't love you anymore. There's people here that would love to pray with you. And we, and we remember the actual message of Jesus and not the one that we think. The actual message of Jesus that all are invited here. And that you have been saved, you have been chosen you have been called by God from before the foundations of the earth were created. This is what communion and the elements remind us of. This is what we're called to remember. And it would do us well to remember these things into our life. So in these next few moments, we're going to prepare to take communion together. 
and in doing so, we're going to take a moment just to quiet our hearts, to examine ourselves, not, not whether or not we're worthy, because we've already talked about that. There's nothing that we can do that makes us worthy of this meal. But to examine our, our hearts to see where we need Jesus. Where do we need his body and his blood? Where do we need him to show up? And as we do that, um, those that are uh, serving, you can come and get prepared for that. And in a few moments, we'll walk through the liturgy together. So uh, let's, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll take uh, a few minutes of, of silence. Jesus, we're grateful. We're grateful that, it's, that our, our life with you isn't dependent on our performance or how well we can follow you. That before the, the world was created, you chose us. You formed us in, in our mother's womb. In these next few moments as we partake in the Last Supper, I pray that you would just remind us of who you are. Those that are serving communion, you can come and prepare now. <laughs> 